Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. very warm welcome to everyone i am shrija agrawal and you are watching the season 2 of our series future of deal making kapil pravado in partnership with jsa as companies around the world reel from the unprecedented disruption of the coronavirus pandemic travel equity may emerge as a source of capital uniquely suited to help businesses weather the storm while in turn putting money to work in transactions at favorable valuations in our second episode of the series future of deal making we are looking to unravel the big question do record levels of cash and a long term investment horizon make private equity a good candidate for assisting an economic recovery one needs to look at history for getting qualified answer on the one in the past two decades funds that side deploying cash following the crisis such as 2001 2004 after dot com bubble burst or 2009 2012 after the financial crisis Prices actually performed 68% higher than funds whose vintage years fell during late cycle peak economic growth, such as 1998 to 2000 or 2005, 2007. The next one are that I have with this August or meaningful panel here. I would like to unravel some of the outlook for private equity, the opportunities that they had, the learnings, the unlearning, more importantly, and more. Please help me welcome Satish Chandra, partner at True North, a homegrown private equity firm. With about two billion dollars in assets under management, I also have with me Rohit Ashra Prasad and Arti Shivananda, partners at Jyoti Sagar Associates. Uh, gentlemen and ladies, thank you for this the first episode of our second season, Future of Deal Making. I'm looking forward to having a very meaningful conversation with this August panel here. I think Satish, why don't I begin with you? Uh, just taking a segue from my introductory remarks as to where we are in the cycle of private equity here, I want to really understand from you that private equity returns are really measured based on vintage year, often defined as the year in which a fund begins making investments in the nine companies. It would be a good idea to understand from you that how do you think that 2020-21 will really sort of pan out as a vintage for private equity? I mean. what we are seeing is that there's just too much capital available the private equity is sitting on huge piles of dry powder does that truly make private equity a good candidate for assisting an economic recovery what really is your sense sure good afternoon everyone uh, thanks rija for this uh, opportunity uh, so just picking on that um, so let me use a different lens uh, rija so uh, just in terms of in terms of how much capital is there Uh, i think broadly then we look at it i know we put a broad brush to it uh, but broadly the way we think about it is that there is late stage capital there is early stage capital and of course there is a lot of capital that come into public markets uh, which is in a way competing with the capital that we provide uh, so if you look at it on a broader time frame yes uh, there has been a lot of dry powder uh, overall when you look at private equity space Uh, but this is not a recent phenomena i wouldn't say that there has been a material change in the last 15 18 months uh, in fact i would say that it's got a little better in the last 15 18 months uh, there has been no fund raise that have happened uh, so to that extent there are quite a few deals that have happened uh, so what we see is there is a bit of uh, normalization i know i'll come to the early stage later uh, there have been a lot of deals there have been a lot of uh, funds which have been drawn from a global uh, pool Uh, but in late stage region what we notice is at least 
private equity has evolved and matured to an extent uh, that even when we look at deals, uh, normally when you look at a lot of dry powder, you must be seeing like four or five funds coming in, bidding one over the other, uh, bidding up the prices. Uh, I think we have, uh, the firms have matured to an extent that we don't see this happening a lot. Even when we have either won deals or lost deals, uh, the differences has been, it's not the price. The price has been in that 5, 5%, 10% bracket, uh, which is a plus or minus where uh, given anything, I think people have a, uh, they will get an opportunity to match. Uh, but I think we have either won or lost based on other factors and not just the price. Uh, so to that extent, I would say that, yes, there is capital, but it's not affecting prices so much. Uh, but if you, let's pick, only on 21 because that's the time frame if you have to pay. I think one material difference that has happened is the public markets. Uh, though the transmission of liquidity, there is liquidity. I think all the central banks have opened up. There is liquidity uh, unquestionably. Uh, but for that to get translated into movement into private equity, there is a lag effect. Uh, funds have to get raised and have to come in for deployment. But in public markets, it's quite seamless. Uh, there is an asset allocation quickly. It flows into the public markets. Uh, and we have seen the prices in the public markets where it is uh, at really high levels. Uh, therein lies the tough thing for us because at the stage that we invest uh, for a founder, uh, our competition is actually the public markets. He can go to the public markets and raise money. Uh, so in a sense, their expectations have gone up uh, saying, why can't I go IPO? Uh, I can get it at a good price. Uh, so that is a factor. I wouldn't uh, deny that that, uh, that plays out. Uh, but I guess the way to think about it, at least how we think about it in uh, true north is we have to stay disciplined. There is no other uh, uh, mantra to this. You have to stay disciplined. Uh, I think for us, at least our focus on few core sectors work uh, in the sense that we track it so much that we, are not, uh, we, do, we don't get swayed by happenings in the last one quarter or a last month or a certain blip because we work on this core sectors. We have been working on this for years together. Uh, so for us, at least uh, that helps a lot not to be swayed by either valuations because they will take a slightly longer view and also in terms of developments in a, a core sector. Um, and just to demonstrate, I mean, I'm not saying this only as words that we have had a history. We have had a history where there was a lot of capital. Uh, it was difficult to do deals. Valuations were extremely high. Uh, and that's uh, in our history, we have actually not deployed capital, we have gone back to our investors and said that we don't think this is the right time to be deploying and putting out capital. And we have actually scaled down our fund size, which is very unusual, which is uh, with hardly seen in our uh, private equity space. Uh, but we thought that is the right thing to do. And we actually did that in our uh, fund four. Uh, and that also reminds us to stay disciplined, uh, stay focused, uh, not actually get swayed by some of the uh, things that happen in short term in the market. So I'll just pause here. I don't know if I've covered everything you wanted me to cover, but I'll just pause here. Absolutely. That was sort of very meaningful and uh, insightful, uh, Satish. Uh, two or three key takeaways that we can gather from here, that it is important to maintain discipline. You have had a track record and you actually return capital to the LPs when you said that there was too much excess in the environment and you would not necessarily be able to put capital to work. And second, I think uh, the fact that you said that you know sector-specific strategy is what you sort of specialize in, and that sort of helps you to not be caught by surprise and have more disciplined investment strategy. 
I sort of want to bring you, Rohit, in now and take a segue to sort of from what Satish just mentioned. What are the kind of trends that you are seeing in the market? Are you seeing excesses building up? Uh, I think Satish was very, very firm when he said that late stage equity, one can't really deny that public markets are your huge competition. What's really the sense that you are gathering? Yeah, uh, you're, you know, uh, Satish is very succinctly put uh, what the uh, landscape uh, presently looks like and what are the issues that uh, in, uh, private equity investors will face going forward. You know, when you talk about this vintage 2021 and the returns that it is expected to generate. So uh, you see, let's, uh, and going back to the, uh, the themes that uh, Satish has uh, touched upon, uh, you know, there is no doubt that returns on PE investments uh, during a downturn, which in India actually started uh, just before the pandemic last year, tend to be higher. So these by themselves could lead one to expect that the 2021 vintage will be an outperformer one. But this may be a right time actually to pause and look back at history, you know, both the, uh, the, the issues that you and Satish uh, touched upon and see if there is anything that one should be wary of and what lessons managers can draw from it. So, you know, when we look at 2005, 2008, which were the halcyon days for PE investments in India before the last uh, global financial crisis uh, hit and during which the PE returns dipped uh, significantly, today, uh, some of the parallels are somewhat striking. You know, so we have 2019 and 2020 seeing the highest volume of PE investments ever, followed by a softening of the macroeconomic situations, which led to a downturn, which actually began, as I said, at the end of 2020, just before uh, the COVID pandemic started uh, hitting us. So in 2005-2008, uh, you know, the investors overestimated the size of the market. Secondly, they were very bullish on the GDP forecasts as well at that time. This led to, you know, what uh, Satish also said, uh, an increasing number of GPs chasing a smaller number of deals. Now, and that in turn led to a slackening of investment discipline. Average transaction sizes increased. Managers became less discerning of sectors, you know, optimistically investing even in those which were capital intensive, illiquid, and uh, perhaps at longer exit times. So as a result, what happened was that when the downturn came, returns were hurt and exits became scarce. Some of these risks and trends are visible uh, as I see even now. So when you look at the number of investable companies in India, their size continues to remain relatively small compared to the other emerging markets. And the GDP growth forecast for FY22 after a gap of several years is now again in double digits. Now, but that could be because of the significant contraction in FY 2021 itself. Thirdly, and this is a very important issue, I feel that capital markets with which P historically, P in India historically has competed with for valuations are overheating, thereby creating a pricing pressure on private buyers. So we could very well fall into a situation or enter a situation where uh, the dry powder that we are seeing will result in GPs having more capital than reasonably can be invested. So the market could uh, very fast turn into a seller's one. The same situation as at the end of 2008. 
Now, if that happens, then returns again could belie expectations, notwithstanding the opportunities that the present downturn presents. In this context, you know, I would like to highlight two facts, which I feel are quite illustrative of the situation that we face ourselves in. First, you know, the massive unprecedented volume of investments in 2020 has primarily been on account of large deals above $100 million ticket size, with the average deal size going up and money flowing into select sectors. When you juxtapose that with the fact that in 2020, the number of exits actually declined with value declining by almost 35% from the previous year. And also the number of exits, the, the, the actual number of exits also came down. So this means that on the one hand, uh, that those sectors which are expected to benefit from the pandemic already have seen investors making a beeline for them and arguably uh, stressed valuations. And those whose future does not look that rosy may be, you know, difficult to exit, you know, as easily. So therefore, you know, I think it's too early to tell how the 21 vintage will fare. Its performance will very well, uh, might very well depend on the lessons that fund ma managers have learned from history and the discipline and prudence they bring to their uh, investment approach. At a fundamental level, you know, they will need to tread cautiously. They will need to get their investment mix uh, correct by focusing on sectors which have the right kind of macroeconomics for the cycle that we find ourselves in and above all liquidity. So therefore, you know, the role of uh, sector specialists within uh, PE firms in making investment decisions will also come to the fore. So, you know, broadly, you know, I, I mean, what I have basically done is that I've developed on the themes that uh, Satish has touched because those, in my view, are uh, very pertinent you know, for how the 21 vintage, when we talk about its expected performance, uh, could turn out to be. Thanks, Rohit. That was insightful. Essentially, what we really gather is that there are parallels being seen from the benign days of private equity to what we are seeing now. And there's a word of caution coming in from Rohit for fund managers that perhaps avoid the excesses that we did see in the past. And perhaps a sector-specific strategy can come handy during these times. I want to sort of understand from you now, Satish, uh, that just sort of, I think it's a beautiful segment to our next sort of uh, discussion point. There have been learnings in the benign days of private equity. We see, you know, liquidity easing again phenomenally. What the kind of learnings or unlearnings that you've had, you know, of private equity during this pandemic time? And what does that really mean in terms of portfolio management, in terms of exit strategies, in terms of perhaps how you look at the investments? And I think uh, one particular theme that we are seeing is really stressed in the market right now, as if that is the nirvana moment for private equity or venture capital in general. We are seeing so much investments happening in technology. And I think simply so because the pandemic has really accelerated the adoption of technology across industries. Uh, so I think two key aspects coming from you want to sort of pick up your brains on uh, really on the strategy and allocation or the strategy change during the pandemic time. And secondly, how do you view as technology uprising in the pandemic as investment thesis? No, sure, Shrija. Uh, let me also use a couple of points that uh, Rohit said, where I have a slightly different viewpoint. Uh, yes, number of deals have gone when we are comparing with the last phase. If you have looked at it, uh, I think the, the volume and the value has gone up. And I think the way we cut it is if you just 
exclude one corporate out of it uh, who have raised in two specific instances that is true <laughs> actually the value is not uh, unreasonably high it's quite uh, quite par for the course and uh, it's not been uh, very high uh, second one i think rohit's observation is right it's not like gdp has grown a lot but there has, there is an increase in deal size uh, i view it slightly differently in the sense that for the same funding i think private equity as a source of Uh, there is there has been some maturity or opportunities that have come up and what i mean by that is just if you take like for example uh, pharma or healthcare uh, earlier we had only minority deals but i think it has matured to a certain extent where we are seeing majority deals or control deals we are seeing buyouts uh, primarily coming from the fact that companies as they are looking at their overall corporate strategy uh, be it in healthcare or uh, pharma i think the way they have thought about it is what do i really need to focus on if i'm having a funding constraint uh, because of what the pandemic has thrown up uh, should i focus on just the core and can i diversify assets and create funds for growing my core assets and what that has done is it's led to buyout opportunities and some of these buyout opportunities are obviously large deals uh, so in a sense buyout and control as a theme Uh, in private equity has been late to come into india i know we have been betting on it for a long time but it's been late to come here but i think it's finally come here we are seeing several opportunities there uh, and therein you see deal sizes going up but it is all on the back of uh, actual need uh, even in terms of some companies raising that capital and it coming in the form of buyout uh, opportunities now broadly now stepping back in terms of what has pandemic taught us Uh, how are we making tweaks to our uh, uh, let's say investment strategy uh, i think we went through an initial period uh, where there was a hesitant we were just hesitant in terms of looking at deals uh, we just thought that we don't know what is the impact of covid how is it on different sectors there was a lot of uncertainty it wasn't just uh, covid it was just what is the impact of lockdown on the different sectors uh, so we just saw a, a period where i think and this is when i don't speak for only for my firm i speak for all firms and the entire ecosystem bankers and companies included uh, there were fewer deals but i think as as companies uh, saw the need for capital coming from two things one is what i earlier spoke on uh, with the fact that they needed to raise that money for restructuring focus on core or divesting few assets uh, second some companies just saw explosive growth and that's where you were referring to in terms of some new age technology companies uh, or technology based or online based companies raising capital all on the back of there was just an explosion in opportunity they just saw an opportunity they were moving in fast that required funds and there was private equity which was coming in and providing that long term capital and i think that's that's essentially what we saw Uh, so we saw that happening. So the number of deals started to increase, and I think people have adopted now in terms of how to work through uh, lockdowns, not traveling, and actually going and consummating deals. Be it diligence, being lawyer, lawyer negotiations, being uh, agreement finalization. I think that uh, there has been a lot of uh, uh, rethink and uh, reorientation that everyone has, else has gone through. Now, in terms of investment strategy, is just tweaks, if I have to say it. And I think what we are using is a in additional lens. We always had a lens in terms of how we looked at companies. We started using an additional lens in terms of analyzing the impact of pandemic or impact of COVID and lockdowns on uh, medium and long term opportunities that a company has or a sector has. 
and what i mean by that is uh, and i don't mean just a lockdown it's just that the market has changed consumer behavior has changed uh, i think the oriented orientation to digital mobile if we expected that evolution to happen over 3 5 years has happened over 3 5 months just because of necessity uh, so that throws up opportunities that throws up few disruption to a few sectors who are not fast enough to move so that's the additional lens that we had to use to view each deal within our sectors uh, of focus to say that what's the medium term impact what's the long term impact uh, and if we were getting comfortable that the long term impact is either neutral or positive uh then we positively look at those sectors and those uh, companies uh and i think that's that's one of the key things that we have started doing uh, second thing as we are working with all our companies uh, we are just saying that you can't take anything for granted uh, you still have to maintain touch with your customers you can't lose them you can't use an excuse saying that nobody is coming to me so i can't do business you have to find a way of reaching out to them and that's where using digital using technology uh, we worked with all our companies to say what's the best we can make out of the situation rather than waiting for someone else to come and disrupt us what can we do very very differently to actually expand the scope and i can give you various example and i think one that comes to mind is cloud 9 uh, which is one of our investee companies i think just the the uh, the speed with which they moved online in terms of beat consultation beat in terms of delivering uh, uh, medicines out beat in terms of actually going closer to home and doing vaccination rather than waiting for patients to come to the centers and uh, doing vaccination or in terms of expanding boundaries of their market uh, you have an expert sitting in bangalore but there is you can use technology and deliver that expertise that everyone has uh, in terms of connecting to the medical devices which is there in let's say far beyond geographies where we are where we don't have centers uh, you can actually from those uh, just the equipments there get all data monitor that online and have a protocol which is administered from bangalore so that's just expands the scope of doctors that you have in one location and it expands their reach into so many markets uh, so it has thrown up opportunities i think a lot of uh, thinking that we have been doing with our portfolio companies is how can you push boundaries here and use this opportunity rather than saying that it has affected our subsector quite a bit that was sort of very helpful and thanks for giving us this candid view satish i sort of want to bring you and arti here we just heard from satish and i think he's sort of reiterated the fact that you know how traditional companies are transforming digitally i think if the two sort of words which have been used the most in the pandemic it is digital transformation and one really gets tired of it but that of course is the reality i want to understand from you at a time when every company out there is trying to label itself as a technology company are you seeing a deal making more skewed towards that what are the kind of trends you are picking up from deal making in general in terms of the market dislocation this pandemic is throwing at us yeah sure hi uh, thanks ija um you know uh you're right i mean the buzzword is uh, really how uh, companies are adapting to tech in fact uh, you know a couple of my clients did mention right after the uh, pandemic struck that when they at the very first right when they looked at their whole portfolio companies and saying you know some of them uh, don't have uh, good internet to even uh, speak on zoom with their investors right so right from there you know the way companies have really scaled up to say you know now i can conduct entire board meetings um you know shareholder meetings as e polling there's uh, you know uh, sorry e voting everything is done on poll there's just been this you know super disruptive um you know growth that this entire 
entire uh, industry and uh, what i mean by industry is not just the pe's right you have pe's you have vcs who are at a very different end of the spectrum lawyers bankers that whole deal making ecosystem just did this quantum leap that none of us would have ever thought of you know before whether each of our organizations were equipped with that kind of infrastructure or not um, as soon as the pandemic struck so um, yes and so some of the clients did mention that they would never look at a target again that could not do that sort of jump right that could not look at uh, uh, scaling so quickly with technology so yes that was very uh, important and as far as you know what is the what are the sort of big uh, reactions you see uh, to deal making post the pandemic or rather in the pandemic uh, times i would categorize it actually into three buckets right you have how the pe's who are like the blue chip sort of um, fellows satish included uh, you know who really uh, cracked it you know how these portfolio companies can actually be given that philip how do you help them do that bolt on acquisition from there even if the fund is not doing a new investment how are they restructuring so all of that is from the you know pe side of things then you have the v- vc side and then you have the government and the regulators who are really you know the most important sort of uh, plug to this whole ecosystem and how various actors are behaving so here i'd like to you know point to um, three things one is from the pe's uh, side uh, you know they very quickly got the memo right the exit by pe and vcs uh, plunged to a six year low and uh, reduced by almost 53% by value in the first 11 months of 2020 so that's jan to november just in the thick of the first wave really and so what you saw there was you know they very quickly abandoned strategic sales mnas you know those kind of uh, laborious negotiation involved uh, mechanisms for exits and you know very and i think sadhi spoke of this in the first question too very quickly jumped to saying you know how quickly can i do a primary market exit or an ipo so those were the number one preferred modes and only if that couldn't happen for whatever reason then they moved into strategic or mnas um and then further down was okay even if that was not going to happen then how do the portfolio companies add value by doing bolt on acquisitions so that i think was like a big trend we saw in deal making from what we saw coming in from peace um pe funds also very uh, you know quickly of course looked at the numbers and said returns will take a hit as a result of significant write downs in portfolios although we do hear that you know some portfolio companies obviously of some uh, sectors which are tech platform driven uh, did not really suffer that much in terms of com- portfolio company valuation so their tech played a role um, and it became the distinguishing factor between companies on how value happened how exits happened etc um, exchange rate volatility and uh, all of that you know helped with uh, uh, exits and what mode the pe funds chose um what we also saw in pe funds of raising capital is the composition of uh, lp based shifted dramatically right so while there's always been interest in emerging markets um with international institutional investors being constrained uh, in the asset allocation you could see a lot more of the dfis were looking at you know coming in directly um almost you know uh, complemented or stood uh, shoulder to shoulder with pe funds so that's another uh, significant uh, trend we saw investments and dfi is calling on us what to do some of these investments um two points on the vc side is you know vcs are uh, a different uh, bucket so there when you look at it they 
need significantly more handholding that they needed to do for their portfolio companies, which were at a very different, you know, growth stage. Um, so over there, the VCs, the pivot that those companies needed to do again came from tech, right? So they helped navigate these companies out of economic crisis by depending heavily on the tech platforms. Um, they looked at saying, you know, how can I um, look at partners in rebuilding the sectors in which these portfolio companies work? So we saw a lot more clients calling on us for, you know, um, partnership uh, agreements, uh, you know, more master service agreements, renegotiation of agreements with existing vendors, customers. So they just needed to, you know, just reformulate uh, that whole Rubik's Cube, you know, of all of these uh, partners who they used to work with. And just by moving those around, they significantly leveraged, you know, their strategic and operational know-how for which they are obviously there, the VCs, and they supported the structural change, you know, quite fantastically. So we really were quite pleased to serve a lot of the VCs um, who worked on these kind of, uh, um, and I think the last one I want to touch is the government and the regulator. Sometimes regulators get for messing around with regulations, uh, adding clarity and uh, value addition where it may not be always welcome. Uh, all of that, um, you know, three or four significant things happened. One is they supported this whole, you know, tech pivot by really not uh, regulating too much. So I think they left it uh, while we have, you know, master legislations coming out like the labor codes and all of that. Just now, you know, there was not too much nitty gritty in terms of how platform workers work. And last year, of course, they changed the rules of game for insurance. And they, you know, up the cap over there for FDI and therefore promoted uh, a lot. So, um, you know, it's been an exciting space uh, during the pandemic and post uh, barring the tragedies of humanity. But, um, you know, tech has given that fillip for the industry. And thanks for that. Uh, I think tech definitely has been a fillip for the industry. I sort of want to sort of bring you in, uh, Satish, uh, just given that we have been here and you look at the healthcare space at True North and you have a history of looking at the healthcare space in deep dive. Uh, there for quite some time. I still really want to understand from you, you know, how has the healthcare opportunity really played out in the pandemic? You know, one really can't forget the fact that it is essentially a healthcare crisis. And, uh, you know, this pandemic is one that's unprecedented and can change generations to come. Everything, economics, culture, communication, everything is bound to change, just given as we sort of uh, get away from the pandemic. I think one key observation that I've had, you know, post-pandemic, since we're already in here, especially with the healthcare sector, that perhaps we are kind of moving away from a very disease reaction-oriented healthcare regime to one which is throughout the year well-being regime. Earlier, people used to only knock at the door of the hospital when you have a disease, for instance, you are really ill. But now I think it's truly moving to a space where throughout the year, you like to sort of be well, <coughs> tracking yourself more closely. So how has that thrown up greater opportunity in the healthcare space? What aspects within the healthcare value chain you find more lucrative? And what you think are perhaps overhyped also? Sure, Shrija. Um, so yeah, I'll split it in two. And when, uh, when I say healthcare, I look at healthcare and pharma as uh, two different buckets. Uh, so let me speak on it, uh, both of these separately, because I've had like extremely diametrically opposite sort of uh, opportunities thrown at them. Um, so just on the healthcare services, you're right. Um, I think it's an irony. I think they're at the forefront 
in terms of uh, helping everyone tackle covid uh, but at the same time they are the ones who are most affected if you look at uh, overall uh, effect on the entire sector or company they are the ones who are most affected uh, very ironically they are the ones who are fighting the uh, battle uh, on the ground uh, so that's an irony uh, but i think what it has done it, it has highlighted uh, the infrastructure shortfall that we have in the country um, and that's one thing that has come out of the pandemic uh, so if i broadly step back if you look at how healthcare services has uh, and in healthcare services there are various things that go in so there is the entire uh, uh, the treatment space which is uh, again starting from quaternary tertiary care hospitals to secondary care hospitals Uh, and then there is the entire uh, clinics front there is the entire diagnostic services so i'll use all of them uh, uh, as healthcare services when i uh, speak here uh, so i think what it has highlighted is the infrastructure shortfall across uh, across when you say quaternary tertiary secondary there is a shortfall um, i think what people forget and if you have to step back uh, if you look at it there's always been a supply demand mismatch uh, this is a high high investment high gestation sort of a sector um and it requires investment and it requires patient capital uh, because it takes time for that capital to uh, throw returns and that's where private equity is always supported this industry because it traditionally fits in quite well right it's long term capital uh, does well there is a supply demand mismatch you can see the secular growth um now always uh, investment has come from one is private equity but before that investment or supply has come from the private sector it's not the government uh, sector here it's always led by the private sector and that funding has come from uh, private equity now while that has been going on a secular basis in the sense that uh, there has been addition to the extent that the private sector can uh, i think i see that in the last 3 4 years there has been a bit of a pause um, i think uh, coming a lot from uh, i think just championing price or affordability Uh, had become a mantra, and in the sense that people chased costs, keeping costs down. Uh, I know anecdotally there might have been one or two cases, uh, but broadly there was an uh, let's say inordinate focus on cost and pricing. Uh, and while the market takes care of itself, I think broadly, if you look at it, healthcare is a very very pure. Uh, it's almost like the true economic uh, uh, competitive uh, market in the sense that supply demand keeps. matching each other nobody runs away with inordinate pricing the minute it does there is additional capacity that comes up it balances itself quite nicely but when there is an external uh, let's say a signal that comes in uh, in terms of regulations uh, we be it in terms of regulating part of the prices like stent prices implant prices or in terms of any uh, in terms of what more can you charge like uh, two governments at least two state governments started introducing uh, draft regulations i think what that signaled is that if somebody is making a long term investment over 5 6 years and i'm here i'm speaking of founders and companies uh, they just think twice because they are saying then if i'm making an investment for 8 9 years and suddenly i see that i get surprises in terms of from pricing being controlled or margins being controlled how should i think of this should i invest or should i wait till i get clarity and i think everybody has been on that wait mode uh so the focus instead of being in terms of capacity and quality shifted a lot towards uh efficiency uh, in terms of cost efficiency in terms of capex efficiency in terms of saying that okay let me not now no only focus on new capacity creation 
let me show even investors public or private in terms of uh, what can you do in the existing assets how much can i squeeze out so there was a lot of focus on that uh, to the extent that let's say supply creation or capacity creation has taken a bit of a fall uh, now when i look back i think now everyone realizes uh, in terms of where we are uh, and where it is probably coming from Uh, so what i'm hoping is at least there has been short short term pain but there has also been i'm hoping realization all around across the ecosystem uh, that somewhere this has to be corrected uh, so the good thing that i take away is that one uh, of course companies have become far more efficient they're focused on productivity they're focused on efficiency they're focused and uh, relooked at everything and made it a far efficient model because earlier if it was inordinate growth focus what's required is also focus on capacity and quality uh, and i'm hoping that uh, what we are going through now that focus is again going to come back uh, and create capacity uh, build in that the right quality and provide that and i think that is going to come up uh, also in in chasing that efficiency people have started looking at all their process systems i gave you a few examples even in cloud9 in terms of using technology either for their internal efficiencies or in terms of how they reach out to consumers or patients and i think on that again businesses have got uh, quite good uh, so overall if i have to synthesize summarize uh, i think they have gone through a pain uh, and i think in this pain they are all coming out much much stronger uh, in terms of what they have learned and what they have focused uh, i think everyone's realized that there is synergy benefits that you can get if you operate as a large chain in terms of how you efficiently move around your factors and inputs and i think we see a lot of consolidation which we've always been saying year on year saying that it should consolidate it should consolidate but i think this has actually been a trigger uh, for at least the initial uh, consolidation moves like manipal buying columbia asia or max buying quite a few hospitals and i think that's another important trend so overall you see the sector becoming stronger and uh, similar trends uh, again in diagnostics and uh, primary care and i think we continue to stay very interested in this another uh, one which has taken a pause during this time is the entire medical technology when what we mean by that is the consumables that go into a hospital space which is in terms of stents implants uh, i know there have been price regulation which has impacted them a bit but that's something that india can do quite well if you look at the china uh comparison it was largely led by mncs with hardly any domestic player but it's completely flipped the other way around uh with the domestic players uh, coming to the forefront and i think we are in the initial beginnings of that even in uh, the indian market uh, we see several stent companies doing quite well in india and also making inroads into europe and trying to target the us markets and i think it's a great opportunity if they can actually make that full transition i know we are at a pause but that but that's something that we continue to uh, track now briefly i'll touch about pharma i know we spoke a lot on healthcare but briefly touching on pharma i think the limelight i think domestic formulation or catering to the domestic market continues to do well um uh, there uh, i think that is a secular growth that we see it's uh, come down a bit last year but i don't think anyone has doubts everyone continues to focus on that that continues to be a focus sector but i think the material shift uh over the last 4 years and uh, even more highlighted in the last 1 year has been on india as a manufacturing destination in pharma i think that's one and, and this happened 3 years back as china was tightening its uh, environmental rules uh, there was a lot of opportunity for indian manufacturers to increase their share in the entire outsourcing market 
uh, and be it in API or be it in terms of CDMO in the early stages and manufacturing for innovators, I think there was a huge opportunity that Indian manufacturers got. And I think that's got even more highlighted in the entire pandemic area where people wanted to diversify their uh, supply base away from China. And this is a great uh, opportunity for manufacturers. They can deploy, create capacity. This is, a, this is essentially you need to create capacity and cater to it. I think they have the capability and the skill. And this is where I think private equity can play a role. Um, and it has happened. You see many deals which have happened on the back of this theme. Uh, both we have done and several firms also have done. And I think this is a great opportunity. This is, uh, uh, if you look at India's space in the overall global industry, I think this is this is a very, very, uh, almost like a curve changing sort of a year. And obviously everyone is uh, quite bullish on it and uh, similar with us. I think I'll just... Pause there, yeah. Uh, Arti, you want to say something uh, to sort of what yeah. the team said? <laughs> Sorry, I was just, yeah, uh, yeah I was uh, curious to ask Satish, what was his take on just the state of all these primary healthcare centers, right? Yes, the PEs are sitting in, you know, uh, um, in more of the metro cities, you know, we're looking at, you know, uh, you, you see where I'm going with that question. So where are these PHCs, you know, what you, who should be looking after those sect of people who can't get that kind of funding? What's the future for somebody who's not in a metro, who's in a tribal area where you have a PHC that has to cater to you? It's a state subject, so center can't set in over there. So yeah. just like your two cents on that, just because you've looked at the sector so deep. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> complicated uh... Uh, question uh, yeah. we also thought about it so okay let me step back i wouldn't uh, i'm let me not put a geographical uh, split to this i think overall primary care uh, has not organized primary care let me put it that way organized primary care has not taken off in india um, and uh, we have looked at several models it has been difficult uh, we have invested in several companies where uh, they have a Middle East operation, uh, for example, Aster and Kim's, they have Middle East operation. There it works very well. They have very, very organized primary care that works well. Uh, and uh, so if I have to compare, uh, why is it different there? Why is it not happening here? Uh, and I think the way Indian market is, so first of all, the, it's not regulated uh, in the sense yeah. that uh, if you look at any other market, you need to have a certain minimum standard in terms of opening up a primary care. Uh, be it in terms of how it's constructed, the safety aspects to it, the quality aspect to it, uh, what minimum uh, instruments do you have, what minimum airflow do you have. So there is, it is regulated, there is, they have to be of a certain minimum quality. And they give out licenses based on how much is required in a certain area. Uh, so and, uh, and not anyone can come and start a primary care center, right? It is quite difficult. Second, it is uh, insurance covers primary care very widely in the other countries uh, and especially in the Middle East, insurance covers primary care or in terms of uh, OPD. And that means that when if you have to interact with an organized institution like an insurance, a single doctor can't do it. So it, then again, it lends itself nicely to organized chains. And what organized chains bring in is that there is a, you can control them in terms of a minimum quality, you can control them in terms of uh, uh, the efficiency which which they run it, they they can bring in synergies because they are doing it on a much larger scale. 
I think that those are the ones which are missing here because your competition here, if you run an organized chain, if you set up and several of them have so you're tried. You're saying the ecosystem has to grow a lot more in order to, to support a PHC. Yeah, it has to grow. It, there has to be a certain minimum quality because otherwise you're competing with a neighborhood doctor who is operating out of his one room. He is taking cash. Uh, he takes in in terms of uh, because there is no cost accounted. There is nothing that he has to answer for the minimum ones that he has. Yeah, yeah. So it's just that's if that's your competition, you can't you can't have prices which sustain a certain quality. Uh, so to answer your question, if you now you get need to get PHC, I think it's far better job if the government steps in and does that, or does it like a PPP model? But if well, the government it, has been sitting on it no, for a long time on the PHCs. I know, but it, 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 see, either either you have to bring in a PPP partner and do it, either you have to do it, which you have to spend, that's a value, yeah. or you have to construct a nice PPP model, which makes sense for private players to come and do it, or you have to change the overall economics such that it becomes natural for people to come and actually do it on their own. Uh, but unless yeah. those are one of the three routes, but as the conditions stand, would someone uh, actually, it's quite difficult. Even to get a doctor to go and sit in a tier two town, uh, because there's already paucity of doctors. Doctors are sought after everywhere. Why he would rather do a business in a metro, charge a higher fee than actually go into? So there is a push that is required there. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.